Thank you, Chief. Okay. Friends, good morning. Great to see you today. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 20. And just like that, we're in Revelation 20, concluding this chapter today, Lord willing. I would like to say again, I've, I've said this several times, I want to reiterate this to you. Uh, just once more, that uh, you might hold a different view of the end times than I do. Uh, I want you to feel comfortable doing so, as long as your view of the end times is based on Scripture. Uh, I'm uh, preaching the book of Revelation from a perspective called amillennialism. We talked about the different millennial views two weeks ago, postmillennialism, premillennialism, uh, amillennialism, Many of you I know are pan-millennialists, meaning it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> so uh, there is not even uh, complete unanimity uh, in these end-time views on the elder board. Uh, several of us hold different views. We don't require you to adopt a particular view to participate in the body at New Covenant, to be a member of New Covenant, only that Jesus is returning in power and great glory. Now that we must agree on, or else we don't have a basis for fellowship with each other. Uh, we must agree that Jesus is going to return physically uh, uh, for his own. Um, so, uh, whatever view you hold, uh, it is not one that uh, I, I don't think we should divide over. I know many people do. So, uh, I, I hope you haven't uh, taken uh, me as trying to shove something down your throat, a view that you're not comfortable with. Uh, please do hold whatever view uh, you and the Holy Spirit arrive at, as long as it's an orthodox view. Uh, or if you're a pan-millennialist, you're welcome to adopt that view as well. So we are uh, coming to a conclusion of our study of the thousand years. And rather than drop in the middle of something, I'm just going to read all of chapter 20 to you. It's only 15 verses. It will only take a minute or so. So I want you to see the context of this passage uh, for where we're going to wind up today, uh, which is the end of the chapter, want you to see what has come uh, before. So Revelation chapter 20, beginning verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Out, uh, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, this is God's inerrant word, his authoritative and inspired word. May he bless what we've just read. And let's just pause briefly and ask again for his help. Now, Father, we do pray you would quicken us with your spirit to understand what's before us. Strengthen me with your spirit. Uh, clear my mind and thoughts and help me to speak your truth clearly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thomas Carlyle was a British historian. Uh, who penned these words. Uh, Foolish men imagine that because judgment for an evil thing is delayed, there is no justice, but only accident here below. Judgment for an evil thing is many times delayed some day or two, some century or two, but it is sure as life. It is sure as death. Asaph. Uh, the writer of Psalm 73 and other psalms complains about this delay that Thomas Carlyle speaks of. And you're familiar probably with what Asaph wrote. Let me remind you of, of how he complained about this delay in justice. Speaking of the wicked, Asaph wrote, Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? But like Thomas Carlyle affirmed, the word of God assures you and me, yes, his 
justice and his judgment is coming. Justice will be served on the wicked. The word of God tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If you long for the righteous judgment of God, if you yearn for fairness and repayment for wrongdoing, if, if this is your desire, and this is the, the, the cry of our culture, is it not? Where is justice? Where is fairness? Because all of us have an inherent sense of rightness and wrongness. If this is what you yearn for, uh, then you will find some sense and measure of satisfaction this morning because we will see justice finally and fully served in Revelation chapter 20. It is Christ's righteous and faithful judgment that we see today that I've just read about referred to as the great white throne judgment. It comes just after the thousand years described in our chapter ends. There are four events uh, in this chapter, four events connected to the thousand years, or the millennium, if you prefer. We looked at one of these two weeks ago. Uh, the first event that John describes is the restraint of Satan. We saw that Satan was bound and restrained in verses 1 through 3. During this gospel age uh, that you and I live in, Satan has been restrained from deceiving the nations as he did before Christ came. And before Christ stripped him of his power at the cross, Satan is also being held back from mounting a worldwide attack on Christ's church. Then moving on from the restraint of Satan, last Sunday morning we saw the reign of the saints, uh, believers who've already died in this age, Christians who've been martyred for their faith, all those who've remained faithful to Christ have been raised spiritually and are reigning with Christ on heavenly thrones. This current privilege of believers in heaven is described in verses 4 through 6. This morning we want to look at the final two events associated with the thousand years. The third event of chapter 20 is the release of Satan. We'll see this in verses 7 through 10. And then the fourth event is the ruling of the judge that we'll discover in verses 11 through 15. But let's pick up where we left off last time and look at this third event connected to the thousand years. Uh, uh, this third event is the release of Satan. Uh, Satan is released to lead a final attack on the church at the end of the gospel age, at the end of the thousand years, at the end of the millennium. There are three things I want to point out to you about his release. 
the first thing we see connected to his release is deception. He is freed so he can deceive the nations. Look again with me at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Uh, note first that this is a deception of the nations. Remember that Satan has not been completely restrained during the thousand years, but has been restrained from this particular aspect of deceiving the nations, as he did in the era of the Old Testament. We read about this all the way back in verse 3. I want to remind you of this. It says, And threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Uh, any longer means that he had been doing so previously, but now in this age, he has been restrained from uh, deceiving the nations. In the Old Testament era, aside from a few notable conversions, the kingdom of God was confined generally to one geographic location and one people group, and that's the nation of Israel. But with the advent of Christ and his payment for sin on the cross, the doors of his kingdom were thrown wide open to, the, to include the nations. That's why we pray this morning for an international church, for the, for the persecuted church in particular today. Uh, that's why we have uh, outreaches to Guatemala and India. That's why we know missionaries in Montenegro and why we pray for them, why we go there and send funds to them. It's because Satan has been restrained in this era from deceiving the nations. This truth is one of the things we celebrate at Christmas, that people walking in darkness have seen a great light. We read this passage from Isaiah 9 on a regular basis around Christmas. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We emphasize this at Christmas in particular that light has dawned on the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Uh, describing the ministry of the Messiah. God also says this in Isaiah chapter uh, 49. Is it too light a thing that, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We enjoy an international church in this age because Satan has been restrained from deceiving the nations. But what we're reading about is this restraint will be lifted toward the end of the thousand years, toward the end of this age, right before the return of Christ, Satan will be released from his restraint and rise up to deceive the nations. 
then note second here that the purpose for Satan's deception uh, follows in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Take note of that phrase. Again, notice that this deception is something that takes place on a worldwide scale. He is allowed to distribute falsehood over the entire earth. And verse 8 goes on to say, Gog and Magog. These are uh, names that are used symbolically here. Uh, John borrows them from Ezekiel. It's another way of referring to the entire non-Christian world. These names were used in Jewish literature to, to symbolize the forces of evil all over the world. And then finally we read about his purpose in the next phrase, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. Uh, his purpose in deceiving the nations is to gather them for the battle, meaning the final battle. The Greek text is very specific. Uh, it says the battle. That's called the article of previous reference. Uh, it means the battle, meaning, oh, that one that I mentioned before. He's mentioned it in chapter 11, and again in chapter 16, and yet again in chapter 19. That battle, that battle that takes place at the return of Jesus Christ, the final battle. Satan deceives the nations to gather for the final battle. This is his purpose of deceiving the nations. And then, then I want you to see third here that Satan deceives the nations into making war against the church. Verse 9 describes this, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. Again, note that this uh, is described as a worldwide uprising. It continues, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city these expressions both refer to the people of God. They, they describe the church scattered throughout the earth. The, the, the camp of the saints compares the church to Israel in the wilderness. And John is saying, like Israel in the wilderness, we too live in a temporary home. This world is not our home. We're temporary residents. We're not at home on earth, just as Israel in the wilderness. And, the, and then the beloved city compares the church to ancient Jerusalem surrounded uh, by enemies and also like Israel of old at the end of this age the church will be surrounded and seemingly outnumbered by the vast multitude of the unbelieving world this is the deception that Satan uh, dispels to the nations to convince them that they can one final time rise up against Christ and his church and eliminate it. This is the first thing we see here is deception. It's deception of the nations, deceptions uh, for the final battle. It's deception to rise up against the church. There's another thing I want to point out here, and we have to hurry on because the, the fate of the church is hanging in the balance from deception. I want you to note, secondly, 
uh, destruction that comes next in the end of verse 9. If you look toward the middle of verse 9, it, it says, uh, Surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The forces of Satan are suddenly and completely annihilated by Christ at his coming. It's similar to chapter 19. Uh, there's no description of a final battle. This is not like the end of, of the Fellowship of the Ring where there is a massive pitched battle with the battle going this way for a time and then for 10 minutes it goes this way and for the next 7 minutes it goes. There's no swing. Uh, Christ returns and it's over. Ah, oh, talk about a satisfying ending. I always get so ticked off when the movie doesn't end right. And you know what I'm talking about. When the bad guy doesn't face justice at the end of the film, when the guy doesn't get the girl, you know. There's no battle to speak of. Christ returns for his church when things are at their worst. And the minute he does, the opposition melts away. And that's no figure of speech according to verse 9. It says, fire came down from heaven and consumed them, or ate them, or devoured them. The word consumed means to be utterly destroyed. Second Thessalonians uh, describes it this way, uh, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. One Bible uh, scholar says consistently John thinks of the power of God as so overwhelming that there cannot be even the appearance of a battle when he wills to destroy evil. I just want you to pause and think about the tremendous power of God. You know you've seen uh, I don't know Godzilla movies or something like that and you know they bring out everything and finally they consider the nuclear option you know, I'm afraid there's no choice left but the nuclear option. And, you know, let's say that a force like that assembles against the Lamb. And they go and look and try to exercise the nuclear option. It won't make a dent. It'll be meaningless when Christ appears and utters the words for the, for the armies of the nations and unbelievers to be destroyed. It will be a terrible sight uh, to behold. But this is the second thing we see after Satan is released. We see, first of all, his deception to uh, bring the nations to this battle. And then we see, secondly, the destruction of those forces when Christ returns. One third and final thing to see about the release of Satan, and that is his defeat. Finally and completely defeated by Christ, 
vanquished is maybe the appropriate word. Verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, God's word tells us that Satan had already been defeated, um, stripped of his power in Colossians 2.15. Uh, Hebrews 2.14 also says that he has been defeated by Christ. Here we see the devil completely vanquished. Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are all thrown into the same place, the lake that perpetually burns with fire and sulfur. And here in the lake of fire it says they will be tormented unceasingly. Um, since these are spirit beings, their anguish will be not physical uh, torment, but mental and spiritual. And they will be in spiritual agony for all of eternity. We see finally the defeat of our ancient adversary, that serpent of old, the devil, finally cast into the lake of fire. So this is the third event we see associated with the thousand years. There will be a, a short season, some versions call it, uh, a short time when Satan is released at the end of the thousand years when he is allowed to deceive the nations as he once did before Christ came. Uh, he'll be released, deceive the nations, and lead them in one final uprising and assault on, on the Lamb and his church. And this in turn leads to the destruction of unbelievers and the final defeat of Satan. One more event, though, that we must see here connected to uh, the thousand years. It happens just after the thousand years, actually, uh, immediately following the return of Christ. And that's the ruling of the judge that takes place at the great, great white throne judgment. I want to mention five things connected with the ruling of the judge here. First and foremost, we must see the ruler at the great white throne. Uh, notice verse 11 in your copy of God's word. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Uh, just let me walk you through this phrase. John describes... Uh, first, the size of this room. He uses the word great. Uh, this term means remarkable or out of the ordinary in degree, magnitude, or effect. This massive throne occupies all of John's attention. It, the throne and the person seated there takes center stage. Uh, no one can take their eyes off of this massive throne. It is a scene of of spellbinding grandeur and infinite majesty that John sees here uh, in, at the end of chapter 20. He, he goes on to describe it as a great white throne. And throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen, uh, well, actually throughout the entire Bible, the color white is often used to portray holiness. That's certainly true here as well. And that means that the decision handed down from this throne will not be marred by sin in any way. It will not be influenced by a fallen nature. But uh, 
it will be influenced and directed by the perfect holiness of the one seated there and will display to everyone the perfect holiness of God. The Psalms praise the Lord for this very thing. You can hear mention after mention of, of this in throughout many of the Psalms. Psalm 95, He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Psalm 98, He will judge the world uh, with righteousness and the peoples with equity, complete fairness. Uh, other Psalms declare the same, uh, that the Lord will be supremely fair. Oh, I, I don't know if we can imagine complete fairness or a completely righteous judgment or, or a decision handed down from an unbiased view given and dispensed with perfect holiness. Commenting on this color, one, one man says it means that not even one speck or wrinkle mars the whiteness of God's perfect justice. So it's a great throne, a white throne, and then John mentions the one seated on the throne here in verse 11. Uh, I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. Who is seated on the great white throne? Is it God the Father? Often we hear the Ancient of Days seated on his throne. Daniel 7 uh, mentions the Ancient of Days seated on the throne. Or could it be Jesus the Lamb seated on the throne? Recall these words of, of Jesus, the promise that he made to one of the churches in Revelation 3. Uh, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. After he was raised from the dead. He's also raised to the right hand of his father, seated on his father's throne. He rules next to the father as a king's son in the ancient world would do, seated next to his father, ruling as co-regent of his father's kingdom. This verse seems to indicate that both God the Father and God the Son are seated on the throne with Jesus at his Father's right hand. But then the New Testament goes further and tells us that it's clearly Jesus the one who will preside in judgment. Acts 17 says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere uh, to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance uh, to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus will pass judgment and dispense justice in holiness. Then earlier this morning we read these words from Matthew 25. Uh, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne 
before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. John 5, for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. And finally, 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we saw previously, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So both father and son are seated on the great white throne. It seems to be from Scripture, but it's Christ who will pass judgment on those assembled before him. First and foremost, we see the ruler seated on a great white throne. Jesus, the Son of God, seated at the Father's right hand. We see uh, uh, another thing, though. The second thing here that we see about the ruler, the, the, the ruling of the judge is the removal. The first heaven and earth are removed from the ruler's presence. Look at the effect the ruler has on creation as verse 11 continues. It says, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Or as one ancient version says, and they were nowhere to be seen. And what we're reading about here, uh, John's using a device called personification. Uh, he assigns human attributes to inanimate objects. Uh, this, this image uh, paints the picture of the parts of creation, uh, this world, that are of course fallen and tainted by sin. And it's as if they are so terrified at the presence of the judge of all the universe that they flee from his presence. Uh, this picturesque way of, of writing is actually describing the removal of the first creation. Uh, the Apostle Peter describes this at some length in 2 Peter 3. Uh, I'm going to read just a few verses. You can look it up later. It's 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. And Peter writes of this same event. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Can you imagine a star melting? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, this is not the only place John's mentioned this event. He's described it uh, in one of the first times through, back in chapter 6, uh, back in the seals, as Jesus the Lamb cracked open the sixth seal. John said this, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every, I think of, whenever I read that phrase, I think of my window shade growing up in my bedroom. And you pull down on it a little bit, 
and the springs in it just anybody have window shades like that oh you missed you know it's great fun to yank down on it and then let go of it and whap, whoosh flap 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 it's also great fun when that does that in the middle of the night of its own accord Sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Well, if that weren't enough, John comes back around to it again in chapter 16. The removal of creation again. As the seventh bowl judgment is poured out, he says, And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven. I hope you can see that this catastrophic event could only take place one time. Uh, the creation dissolve in flames just once, and mountains and islands be removed from their place just once, and the sky be rolled back as a scroll just once. This repetition of this catastrophe uh, helps us see that John is repeating himself in the book of Revelation, that he's describing the same events uh, from different perspectives, uh, different, uh, seven different times, as a matter of fact. And each time coming around to this event, the day of the Lord, we see the removal. Second, the third thing we see here connected with the ruling of the judge is the resurrection. All stand before the great white throne. Uh, I've got some, several cross-references here. I encourage you to jot these down if... if uh, by chance you might not agree with me on this. Uh, we see this resurrection in verse 12, and look at what it says in your Bible. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. There are three groups of humans standing before the throne uh, in the first half of verse 12. Uh, first, there are believers who died before Jesus returned. These are the faithful saints, whether they were martyred or died naturally. Uh, they are, uh, 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 including Old Testament saints, these saints had already been raised spiritually in the first resurrection. We saw this up in verse 4. We saw the souls of these believers seated on thrones reigning with Christ. And at the return of Jesus Christ on the last day, their physical bodies were raised from the grave, made like Christ's glorious body, and they were reunited with their souls. Let me show you this from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we won't all die. But we shall all be changed. That is, transformed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, meaning that the physical bodies of the saints in heaven are raised from the grave, transformed into imperishable bodies and reunited uh, with their souls in heaven. The first group standing here before the great white throne is departed believers who've just been given these new bodies and they're 
Oh, I, can, I can't, I, I dare not imagine or put words into their mouths. I'm sure it would be blasphemy to me to guess what they might say. Uh, the second group, not only departed saints, the second group standing in this resurrection before the great white throne is believers who were alive at Christ's return. Those caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Look at this verse again. Let me put the last phrase on it. Uh, it says, uh, the, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised. That is, bodies of deceased saints will be transformed and reunited with their souls. And we, that is, we who are still here at the return of Jesus, we shall be changed. We will be transformed. We will be given glorified bodies and made like Christ. Ah, boy, my imagine just, just thinking about not being allergic to anything and all kinds of... Ah, 1 Thessalonians 4, of course, also describes this transformation. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's what we've already mentioned. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye and be on our way to meet Christ as he comes back. Man! Ah, if that doesn't put a chill down you you're, you need another cup of coffee or something I don't know. man then the third group standing before the great white throne will be all unbelievers they too will be raised spiritually and physically only their bodies will not be glorified and made like Christ these unbelievers who had been temporarily residing in Hades Verse 13 tells us that these two are raised to stand before Christ. It says, Then death and, uh, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, it says there in verse 13. Now, Pastor Rob, how do I know that all these three groups are standing before the great white throne? Deceased believers, living believers, and deceased unbelievers. There will be no unbelievers alive at this point. Christ has returned and has annihilated them all. How do we know these three groups are before the great white throne? This is what the New Testament, in my opinion, seems to teach. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.10 again, we must all stand uh, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Consider again Matthew 25 we read earlier this morning. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A few verses later, 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Consider this passage from John chapter 5. Uh, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And then think about these from John chapter 6. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. A few verses later, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And again, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. You catch a theme going here? The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken uh, will judge him on the last day. Even Martha knew that her dead brother Lazarus would be raised on the last day. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. How did Martha know that? Martha knew that from Daniel chapter 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What all these seem to point to is that there is one resurrection from the dead that takes place on the last day, on the day that Jesus returns. Uh, The souls of deceased believers in the presence of the Lord will be reunited with their new glorified bodies. Living believers uh, will be given imperishable bodies at the last trumpet and meet the Lord in the air. Unbelievers will also be raised. Uh, Hades, where they reside temporarily, will give up its dead. And these three groups comprising all humans that have ever lived will stand before the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne to receive what they've done in their bodies, whether good or evil. It will be an awesome day. William Hendrickson says this, all individuals who have ever lived on earth are seen before the throne. Here is the one general resurrection of all the dead. The entire Bible teaches but one general resurrection. This one and only and general resurrection takes place at the last day. This is the third thing we see in the ruling of the judge, the resurrection. Let me continue on. The fourth thing we see here is the rationale the underlying principle by which these people are judged. What what are the grounds or reasons by which Christ sends the sheep in one direction and the goats in another? Again, look at verse 12. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. 
death in Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The rationale or the reason by which Christ judges all of humanity are books, at least two books. They're not actual books. They're symbols of the perfect uh, divine omniscience of God. God doesn't need to write anything down. Do you think Christ needs to take a note? They're, they're books, we refer to them as books. They're symbols of the divine mind that has perfect and complete knowledge of all things. They're often referred to as books in, in Scripture. And, and you remember this, how David uh, describes the omniscience of God as a book. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. These books represent God's knowledge of all things fully, perfectly, completely. We call that omniscience. The dead will be judged according to their actions recorded in God's memory. They, they'll be judged according to the perfect standard of God's moral law written upon every person's heart according to Romans 2.15. And of course, as you know from the book of Romans, this perfect standard will reveal every human to be a lawbreaker. Everyone who has ever lived with the exception of Jesus Christ has fallen short of God's perfect standard and will be condemned as a lawbreaker. Thank God there's another book. Verse 12 also refers to the book of life. Earlier in Revelation, John called it the Lamb's book of life, meaning it's a book that belongs to the Lamb. And earlier, John told us also that this book is filled with the names that were written in his book. They were written there before the creation of the world. This book of life is a registry of all those who were chosen for salvation by the Father before the foundation of the world. This book of life is a registry of all those that Jesus the Lamb purchased with his blood on the cross. In other words, this book contains the names of all those who ever have or ever will put their faith in the atoning work of Christ. All those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior and Lord will be judged according to this book and will hear the words we read earlier, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I hold an ancient document in my hand. It's called a dictionary. And you... Maybe if you're a homeschool parent, you own one of these in your house. But most of you are like me. You look up words on your phone, online, anymore. They actually still publish these. Webster's Unabridged is massive, and it sells for nearly $100 on Amazon. Uh, they still sell a collegiate dictionary about this size. Uh, this one is, is, you can imagine, quite quite a few years old. But what 
Webster's used to put in the back was biographical entries, names of people that you could look up. Uh, it's interesting how they chose people to be included in, in the back. Uh, this was written several years ago, uh, and it says, for example, Audrey Hepburn is included, but not Spencer Tracy. It includes Bing Crosby, but not Bob Hope. Willie Mays, but not Mickey Mantle. And the executive director explained that names make the cut based on their frequency of use and their usefulness to, to the reader. The updated version might have those names now, perhaps. Uh, and when this was written, Elton John and Michael Jackson aren't in the dictionary, but Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley are. This is arbitrary. There's another book far more significant that, that someone find your name in. And that's the one that this describes the Lamb's Book of Life. So uh, I just want to pause and ask on that day, will your name be found in the Lamb's Book of Life? Serious as a heart attack here. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Or will you stand before Christ on that day and like someone looking for Michael Jackson, I'm sorry. Did you think you were in the Lamb's Book of Life? Your name's not here. And as Jesus describes in the gospel, some of us will say, I've been teaching Sunday school. I cast out demons in your name. And Christ will have to say, depart from me, I've never known you. So, have you come to the place in your spiritual journey where you've recognized that your sin has separated you from a holy God and will exclude you from God's presence eternally? Have you come to see that Christ made the only payment sufficient for the debt of your sin on the cross? And have you turned from your sin? Your self-righteousness. Your self-sufficiency. Your church membership. Your Sunday school teaching. And relied on exclusively on the payment that Jesus made there on the tree that Friday afternoon? Have you come to rely on Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? And if so, I have the great pleasure of assuring you that your name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life and is 
been there since before creation. God's word calls you today to turn away from sin, to trust in Christ. If you've never done so, today, Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And if you've not yet come to know Christ, believe me, friends, you, you, you keep pushing him off. But there will come a day when you need him. And it will be too late. Today is the day. If you hear his voice calling you and simply cry out, I cannot do this in my own strength. I cannot love you. I cannot turn from sin in my own power. You have to give me a new heart to do it. Cry for that new heart. <coughs> Cry for that gift of repentance and faith that he will give. He assures us, uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This will be devastating. Uh, for those who have not. This is the rationale for um, those who will stand before him, the basis upon which they are judged. The books, one, uh, a book that contains our works, the other one, the Lamb's Book of Life. And finally, we come to the fifth thing, and that's the repayment or the recompense or the reward or whatever uh, word you want to use uh, the reward for what people have done and this is in verse uh, 14 uh, then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire here we see death abolished as 1 Corinthians 15 uh, describes the last enemy to be destroyed is death here in verse 14 death is destroyed and then verse 15 and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire uh, that lake that will burn for all of eternity. Uh, unbelievers whose names are not found in the Lamb's registry, who have not been written there before the foundation of the world, those who chose not to turn from their sin to trust in the atoning work of Christ, all those are thrown into the lake of fire. It's a place of spiritual torment since Satan and his fallen angels are exclusively spiritual beings. Their eternal torment is spiritual in nature, as we read up in verse 10. It's also a place of physical torment. The Gospels describe it as a place of weeping and grinding of teeth. And there will be hour after hour of teeth gritting, and oh, how I wish I had listened. Unbelievers, of course, will suffer spiritual torment. <coughs> but also, since they have resurrected bodies that will never die, they will not be annihilated, as some maintain. They will not be obliterated from any kind of existence. They will suffer spiritually and physically. 
separated from the life-giving presence of God for eternity. Friend, you don't want to be there. Well, chapter 20 really focuses on the repayment of unbelievers. And for the repayment and reward of believers, we'll have to wait till next Sunday in chapter 21. So these final two events of the thousand years, we've seen one, the release of Satan for a short season. He's uh, unrestrained and allowed to deceive the nations to uprise against the Lamb. And then the fourth one, the ruling of the judge, the great white throne judgment where Christ will decide based on the Lamb's book of life who will enter his presence and who will not. Let me uh, pray for us as we uh, conclude today. And now Christ, uh, I pray for those here in the room this morning who have yet to acknowledge you, uh, your payment on the cross, who have yet to turn away from their sin, uh, their self-righteousness, anything they're trusting in for, for salvation. I pray, God, you'd bring them to see that one day they will need you desperately as they stand in front of you. Father, I pray that you would show them today is the day of salvation. I pray that you would, in your gracious and loving invitation, draw them the saving faith, uh, Father, in Jesus, your Son, that they would see with new eyes his payment for sin, his death in their place. He died their death and now lives their life. I pray you bring many, uh, whoever's in the room that has not yet put their faith in Jesus to, to come to him today. The remainder of us who are here, Lord, that we would live in light of this day when we will stand before you and the books will be opened. I pray that we would live lives of holiness before you in light of your soon appearing. And Jesus, that you would strengthen us with your grace to persevere till that day. And may it come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so, please come quickly. But in the meantime, strengthen us with your good spirit that lives inside of us. Christ, we pray this in your name. Amen.